You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. Um, John mentioned, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan. Uh, I serve as the other of the two pastors here. Uh, good to have you with us this morning. Uh, for whatever reason you, you find yourself here, grateful to have you. Uh, we're in the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 today. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bible, uh, page 201 is where uh, today's text begins. I should mention this too before we dive in. Um, we have uh, our admin, Caitlin Ogden, uh, they, they welcomed their baby a week early on Thursday. Uh, Micah Ogden was born to, uh, to Caitlin and Kevin on Thursday. Uh, so as you have opportunity, reach out to them and congratulate them. Uh, also, um, wanted to announce in Caitlin's now absence for uh, the, in the coming weeks while she's home on maternity leave, uh, Adam Carvella has jumped in to be a temporary admin uh, support for us at the church. So if you see Adam, thank him uh, for jumping in uh, on, on uh, short notice. Uh, we got the news Thursday morning that Caitlin's baby had been born, and Adam was here like Friday to do all the copies and stuff for this week. So I was really uh, thankful for, for that. Uh, as I've been uh, helping my daughters learn to read uh, and write and spell, uh, I've been reminded recently about how odd the English language is and can be. I don't think, this is actually confirmed first service by some educators, they don't teach this anymore, but when I was growing up in school, I was taught this phrase, I before E, except after C, or when sounded as A, as in neighbor or way. Uh, so there's a pattern, right? This, this phrase was taught because it's a pattern. It's meant to, to help us learn the English language. It makes things predictable when we're confused about how to spell a certain word. The problem is that pattern of I before E is broken all the time. For example, when you leisurely forfeit caffeine and feisty heifers. All of those words are, okay, you got it, E before I. So, so there are patterns, but there are many interruptions. There are molds, but the molds are often broken. This morning we're in our second week in the book of Judges, and I mentioned last week that there's this pattern that emerges in this book. There's an observable, repeating cycle in these accounts of 12 God-appointed leaders. But it is by no means uh, formulaic. And as we'll see this morning in Judges 2 and Judges 3, the pattern is established in this long introduction. It plays out once in the story of Othniel, and then the mold is immediately modified or even broken with the stories of Ehud and Shamgar. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we will dive into today's text. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. And for you, we wait all day long. And we pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. 
For the Lord was moved to, to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their, or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and has not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So that land had rest 40 years and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is another name for Jericho, the city of Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, which is 18 inches, in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked the door. 
When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Seirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is God's word. In this passage, uh, we see some very predictable things and some very unpredictable things. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we'll look at both the predictable and then the unpredictable. So first, the predictable predictable. Uh, There is, as we've mentioned, a pattern to the narrative of Judges, and we saw pieces of it last week at the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16, picks up where that left off. The pattern goes like this. There's rebellion. God's people turn away from him. There's retribution. God mobilizes an enemy nation, an enemy people, as an act of judgment against his people. There's repentance. God's people cry out to him for mercy. And then there's rescue. God raises up a judge or a deliverer for his people. There's also after that then a period of rest, um, sometimes 40 years, sometimes 80, sometimes uh, less uh, than that. Relative calm and stability until the whole thing repeats itself. But as we see here in chapter 2, verse 19, it's not merely a cycle. Whenever the judge died, the people turned back and were more corrupt than their father's. So it's a, it's a downward spiral as this cycle repeats. And the author of Judges, uh, whoever that may be, sets up the, the core of this book with a long introduction in order to establish this predictable pattern that the rest of the book will follow. And from it, we learn that there is order to the way God works in the world. There's order to the way God works in the world. Sin receives judgment. Because God is holy, so sin receives judgment. Repentance receives mercy because God is compassionate and kind. Nations and armies and kings might think that they are accomplishing their own purposes and their own ends. They're they're doing their own bidding, but ultimately they are doing the bidding of the one true God, the true sovereign, the one king over all the universe. There are some other things highlighted then in this text which are predictable. Predictable. For one, Sin is predictable. Sin is predictable. Sin is boring. You might not think of it that way often. Sin is boring. As Michael Wilcock, an Old Testament scholar, puts it, although Satan must not be underestimated, his objectives are nevertheless quite boringly predictable. The most varied and exotic of temptations are never anything more than lures into the same old seven deadly sins. Sin promises so much and it delivers so little. And that doesn't stop you and I from trying, from maybe kidding ourselves to think that maybe next time it will deliver. 
But the repetition of this pattern in Scripture is everywhere. God's people abandon him and become idolaters. They worship other gods. Rather than living out their identity as wholly set-apart people, they begin to identify with the people and practices around them. Then they end up then enslaved, or as we saw at the end of our text from last week, in great distress. And we see that here, especially in the first few verses of chapter 3. First, the Israelites live among the Canaanites. Then they start to marry the Canaanites. And then they serve the false gods of the Canaanites. So it goes quickly from accommodation to alliance to identity. And whenever in Scripture here and elsewhere we see intermarriage being condemned, the issue there is is not race, but worship. It's worship. It's, the, the issue with intermarriage is that it leads your heart astray. As one author put it, the surest way to end up loving the world is to bind yourself to someone who already does. The surest way to end up loving the world is to bind yourself, and particularly in a marriage, is a binding covenantal thing to someone who already does. So just like their grandparents who wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, this generation of Israelites predictably are not going to experience the complete fulfillment of God's promise to give them the land. Through the judges, they're going to experience relative periods of rest, but never the rest that God has intended for them as he's sent them into land that is meant to be their own. So sin is predictable. So also is God's testing of his people. God's testing of his people. There's an interesting paradox that starts to emerge in this introduction to to judges. So far as we've read this, we hear that the remnants of the Canaanites are still in the land. Why? Because of Israelites' unfaithfulness. Uh, because of the Israelites' disobedience. It's a consequence of their own sin that these nations are left there. But now here, in chapter 2, verse 22, and in chapter 3, 1 and 2, we also read it, that they're there in order to test Israel. And these things are not contradictory. Often the test for God's people is, okay, now that you are immersed in the consequences of your sin, how will you respond? Will you double down in that rebellion? Will you keep running away from me? Or now that you're immersed in some of the consequences of it, will that be enough to to turn you back from it and to be faithful to me again? We saw last week, this generation somehow missed a firsthand experience of God. So maybe this is how they're going to get it. Maybe this learning warfare and being constantly at war is how they will get their own desperation, their own dependence upon God themselves, rather than vicariously living that out through their parents. Because they're so inclined to forsake the one true God, this new generation needs to know warfare as well. You and I tend to see things like prosperity, peace, rest as blessings, And often they are. Often they are blessings. But they can be just as much of a curse. They can be just as much of a curse. And I think, in many ways, that's playing out in our own culture and our own society. We, compared to the generations of people that have gone before us, have more peace and more prosperity and more rest than almost anyone in the history of the world. And what's it done for us? It's made us averse to suffering. It's made us addicted to comfort and leisure. It's made us a decadent and entitled people. And so, predictably, God will test his people. It's how he has always functioned. 
Suffering in our lives is not only a consequence of our sin. In fact, sometimes when we suffer, it's not a consequence of our sin at all. And in God's economy, whatever the reason we suffer, suffering becomes the gateway to redemption. It becomes the way that we learn to find the true source of life in God himself. God loves his people. God loves you enough to not let that decadent entitlement just continue unchecked for your entire life. And so with the Apostle James, we can learn to say audacious things like when we experience trials of various kinds, when we are tested in our faith, we can actually count that as joy because of what that testing and what those trials are accomplishing in us. And that leads us to the other predictable aspect of all this is that God does not just want his people to pass a test. He wants their hearts. He doesn't just want his people to pass a test. He's not a, he's not a boot camp instructor. He's not, a, he's not a, an academy teacher trying to weed out people however he can. God wants to marry his people. He loves them. He's a covenantal God. And so when people reject him, he doesn't have this impersonal, dispassionate response. He doesn't stand off with his arms closed and say, that was a bad decision. I hope you do better next time. No, he's angry. Did you hear that in this text? He's angry. He's moved. He takes it personally. The same way that a loving husband would if his wife were having an affair. It's why in Scripture, a primary metaphor for God's relationship with his people is marriage. And a primary metaphor for idolatry and apostasy is prostitution or adultery. Even for those who pass the test, even for those who know the rules and learn to keep the rules, God will not be satisfied until he has your whole heart. He's not just looking for you to pass a test. He's looking for your heart. Now, all of that, all the way up through chapter 3, verse 6, is the introduction to the book of Judges. It's long. It's long. But then, in chapter 3, verse 7, we get to the account of the first judge, this man named Othniel. Othniel. And in many ways, Othniel is the ideal judge. He's the mold. He's the mold. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from Caleb's family. Uh, So he's got the right pedigree. He's got the right resume. He's part of the tribe from which the line of David will come. Ultimately, the Messiah himself, Jesus, will come. And Othniel is an upstanding man. He's portrayed in this book without flaw. We met him last week very briefly in chapter 1. Even before he was officially one of the judges, he was a courageous and faithful man. So in the midst of all of this discontinuity between the generation of Joshua and Caleb and now this new generation, Othniel is actually a lot of continuity. He's a lot of continuity. So when the people do evil and they serve false gods and are given into the hand of this king of Mesopotamia, the people cry out to God for help and God's answer, God's response is to raise up Othniel. And it says the spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's He's not a self-made hero, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, he defeats Cushan Rishathaim and secures 40 years of rest for the land. So Othniel is the mold. He's the mold. He's the prototypical judge, which illustrates the pattern and the cycle that the author took so long to explain in the introduction. But let me ask you this. Uh, for any of you who have been a Christian for a little while, for any of you who have read the book of Judges or maybe even had the chance to study Judges before, if before today I were to ask you to name 
some of the 12 judges in this book, would you have ever thought of Othniel? Would you have ever remembered Othniel's name? Maybe a few of you, you Bible scholars among you. But most of you probably not. And let's be honest, six months from now, you'll probably have forgotten his name again. This is amazing deliverance. 40 years of rest secured for the people. It's an incredible reality, but it's really bland and mundane as far as storytelling goes. Why? The memorable judges in this book are the ones who break the mold, who don't fit the mold. So you'll likely remember Samson and Gideon. And maybe, especially after today, you'll remember the next judge, whose name is Ehud. They are the unpredictable ones. So second, let's talk about the unpredictable. The unpredictable. As soon as this pattern is established in Judges, as soon as it's displayed one time in the story of Othniel, it's immediately disrupted with a number of unpredictable elements. First, the enemy is unpredictable. Even before we meet the judge, the enemy is unpredictable. God gives the Israelites into the hand of Eglon, king of Moab. Uh, Moab is not in the promised land. If you saw there in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, they're not on that list of enemies that the people of Israel were supposed to be facing. Moab was Israel's enemy previously, during their years of wandering in the wilderness. But now Moab has come into the promised land and they have defeated the Israelites at the city of Palms, which is Jericho, which is actually the first city that the Israelites took when they came into this land. They lost the first city that they had for years. It's now under Moabite rule. Not only is the enemy unpredictable, the judge is unpredictable. Verse 15, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. A left-handed man. Now, most of us don't speak Hebrew, read Hebrew. There's a huge irony just in that introduction, just in those words there. The name Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, it means son of my right hand. So here's a left-handed, right-handed person. It's wrong. It's messed up. And in this culture, which is still largely true in ours, it's a right-handed person's world. Can I get an amen from the left-handers like myself in the room? It's a right-handed person's world. The right hand is the hand of strength. And that's especially the perception among the people of God because when God talks about rescuing his people, when he talks about protecting his people, he rescues them with his righteous what? Left hand? No, his righteous right hand. And he rescues them and protects them with his strong right arm. And when Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, it's, it's at the right hand of the Father, not the left hand of the Father. Left-handed is weak. Left-handed is backward. Actually, in the original language here, what it says is that Ehud was unable to use his right hand. It's actually written in the negative. It's not like, that's Ehud, that's the left-handed guy. It's like, no, that's the guy who just can't use his right hand. And scholars aren't sure if that's just simply an idiom, the way you would refer to, to anyone who is left-handed, the way we would call someone a southpaw, perhaps. Or if Ehud actually had some kind of physical handicap or was born with some kind of deformity where he literally could not use uh, his right hand. We're not sure. Either way, it makes him an unpredictable deliverer. And you can tell by how the story plays out. Eglon sees him as no threat at all, not even a little bit. Ehud hides this sword on the opposite leg, but how bad of a bodyguard do you have to be to pat down one leg and like not pat down the other? How bad of a security force are you just to try the one side and not the other? I actually think it's more likely they didn't pat him down at all. 
because he was just such a non-entity, just such a non-threat to them, which is another unpredictable element of this story, the means of deliverance. How does, how does Ehud even gain an entrance, an audience with Eglon? He's the bearer of tribute, which is the, which is the epitome of submission for a conquered people. A tribute is saying, okay, you own us, we serve you, so here's our money, here's our crops, just to show that we've accepted how inferior and how much weaker and how subjugated we are as a people. You're better, we lost. So he presents the tribute, they leave, Ehud dismisses the other people who came with him to bring the tribute, and he goes back by himself. And what ensues is recorded, as I'm sure you heard, in vivid and violent and grotesque detail. This is like a Quentin Tarantino movie before there was Quentin Tarantino. But instead of Kill Bill, Bill in this case is an incredibly obese man named Eglon. Eglon means calf or young bull. Eglon, we find out here, has been fattening himself on Israel's tribute. But now as God is going to move and intervene to rescue his people, Eglon is the fattened calf ready for the slaughter. That's what the original readers hearing this language and knowing what that name meant would would hear. And so Ehud, with his left hand, plunges the sword into Eglon's belly. And that's where the sword stays. He doesn't go home with the sword he came with. It stays in Eglon from that point on. And then the dung came out, which is everybody's favorite Bible memory verse. You don't learn that one growing up in Sunday school. And the dung came out, which means exactly what it says. That's actually why Eglon's servants wait so long to check on him. It's not only that the door is locked, it's that it smells like he's going to the bathroom because the dung came out. And during that delay, Ehud escapes. He makes it to the hill country of Ephraim. He rallies the people. They fight against Moab. They kill 10,000 men of their army, and the land has rest for 80 years. Do you see how unpredictable and mold-breaking all of that is? It's not the ideal judge, one who is strong physically and strong in character, uh, one who just leads the army in a head-to-head combat display of power. No, it's a cunning, deceptive, CIA-style assassination by a non-threatening tribute-bearer who is unable to use his right hand. And Shamgar, the next judge, is just as unpredictable. He's the judge who we know the least about. I mean, how short-changed does Shamgar feel? Samson gets four chapters in the book of Judges. Shamgar gets one verse, one. And notice how little of the pattern is present in his story. There's no statement about Israel's rebellion. There's no description of God's retribution and how he was judging them through the Philistines. There's no crying out to God. It's simply... Shamgar took a long pointy stick and he killed 600 Philistines and he also saved Israel. That's all we get. But his name in particular makes him an unpredictable judge. Shamgar, son of Anath. Most likely, most likely, this is not an Israelite man. His name is certainly not an Israelite name. And there's a Canaanite goddess, warrior goddess named Anath. And so many scholars think that this was a non-Israelite and perhaps a worshiper of that Canaanite goddess, Anath, whom God raised up to deliver his people even though he was not among his people. 
And if that's the case, it only serves to show God will bring deliverance from unpredictable places. He will use unpredictable people and in unpredictable ways. Othniel is the classic hero, Mr. Perfect. Othniel was voted most likely to succeed in his high school class. Ehud is the unlikely hero. He's the least likely to succeed. He can't even use his right hand. Shamgar is the outsider because God is not limited in how he will bring deliverance. All that to say, as we read Judges, who is the real hero? Who is the real judge? Who is the real deliverer? It only ever has been and it only ever will be God himself. And God's work in the world and God's work in our own lives is both predictable and unpredictable. It's predictable in that we know the ultimate aim of our lives and indeed every created thing is to proclaim his glory and worth. We know it's predictable in that we know that sin has pervasively corrupted this world in every facet of our lives. And it's predictable in that we know God will keep his promises. We know without a doubt that salvation is coming. And as we say together often when we recite the Apostles' Creed, that God will come again to judge the living and the dead. That we believe in the resurrection of the body and we believe in the life everlasting. What's not predictable, what we don't often know, is how that salvation will come. How will God keep his promises? Our knowledge of God is sufficient, but it is far from exhaustive. It's far from exhaustive. Can you imagine being an Israelite living during this period and trying to figure out God's methods? Okay, we've got this pattern, Othniel. Okay, those are the kind of judges we're looking for. And then immediately after him, Ehud. Okay, that's different. That's different. And then Shamgar. Shamgar, son of, son of Anath. A pagan? A pagan? It would leave you nowhere, no idea where to look next for deliverance except to God himself. It would leave you no idea where to look for deliverance except to God himself. And the same is true for you and me today. Salvation has been secured through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we know that he will come. We know that he will bring that deliverance. But we haven't the slightest clue about what all of our lives and circumstances will entail until that day. We're so limited in what we know about God's methods and about God's timelines. And the minute that we start to think that we know, the minute we try to pin God down is the minute that his righteous right hand will do something completely left-handed. That's how the Jewish leaders missed Jesus. They were looking for a politically triumphant king who would conquer the Roman Empire. And instead they got a baby. Instead they got the man who in his baptism identified with sinners. They got the man who had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. They got the man who was despised and rejected by men. They were looking for the kind of power that would come down off of the cross. And they got the infinitely greater power that was willing to remain on it for the forgiveness of sin and for the life of the world. It is the ultimate left-handed deliverance. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate left-handed deliverance. So expect to be surprised by God in your life. Expect to be surprised by how God will work in you. 
He will bring his saving, purifying, sanctifying work to bear in your life. But it will come through means and through methods that you do not expect at all and that you would never choose for yourself. Successes and failures, prosperity or poverty, comforts and sufferings. It will come in ways that make it impossible for you and I to pin down the omniscient, omnipotent creator and sustainer of all things into our nice little patterns and molds and boxes. And likewise, expect to be surprised at how God will work through you. Not only in you, but through you. As Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, God is the one who takes those who are foolish and weak and low and despised in the eyes of the world and those are the people that he uses to accomplish his purposes. Thank God for that. Thank God for that because as Michael Wilcox summed it up, after all, who would have expected that God would choose to work through such a left-handed crowd of people as the Christian church? I mean, can we just acknowledge that this morning? We are left-handed, backward, wrong people for that mission, and God chooses to work through us anyway. So friends, because God is unpredictable, because you and I will never pin down his methods, may it leave you nowhere to look, may it leave you nowhere to turn but to God himself. But because God is predictable, may you trust him. Even though our unanswered questions will be many, even though we know not how, We do know him. We do know him. We know that he will do what he said he will do. And in Christ, he will come and save you. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, God our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask now that what we do and how we live and the way that we love would increasingly become a worthy response. We are those who rebel. We are those who need rescue. And you have come after us to rescue us in no more clear, no more powerful, no more effective way than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we prepare now to come to his table, to feast again on his finished work, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would Remind us of the rescue that is ours in Christ. That you would strengthen us again, restore us again to faithfulness. That you would offer again your grace and your deliverance to us. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.